He has been called the father of the social sciences and the founder of the modern science of history. His ideas have been heralded in the West and studied by historians of all regions and cultures. The great British historian Arnold Toynbee called Ibn Khaldun's work the greatest of its kind. He has even been cited as a justification for policy by former President Ronald Reagan. But like all great figures, every bit of his legacy has been questioned. In any case, he remains an example of a time when the greatest mind in the social sciences, like many other sciences, was, unsurprisingly, a Muslim. Today, we're going to take a look at one of the most famous names in the Muslim intellectual world, that is Ibn Khaldun. So please, stay with us. Khaldun is one of those rare figures whose fame is great in the West as well as in the Muslim world, and who's not famous just for religious reasons. And like many great figures, he has been subject to so many reinterpretations and critiques that getting to the truth is now pretty hard. It's like talking about Shakespeare. So much has been written about him with every scholar trying to make their name by overturning all the conventional wisdom that went before that you can't have a normal discussion about him. Like during the Vietnam era, everyone wanted to tell us that Henry V, a play that shamelessly glorifies war, was secretly an anti-war play, and so on. Well, just like that, there is conventional wisdom about Ibn Khaldun, and then there are all the dissertations and books that have been written to tell us that the conventional wisdom was all wrong and that this scholar got it all right. Well, we're going to try and deal with both of those to some extent in this episode and talk about this very important character. Well, Ibn Khaldun was born in the year 1332 in Tunis. So this makes him a little bit younger than Ibn Battuta, whom we studied last week. Now I mention that because if you remember, I said that Ibn Battuta was definitely a man of his times, and that those times were a brief period of prosperity and stability in the early 1300s, after the Mongol conquests, but before the Black Plague hit. By the end of his travels, that plague had changed everything, and Ibn Battuta had to go back home, where he found a world in, in shambles. Well, Ibn Khaldun was a man of his times as well, and in fact, he spent his life trying to explain those times. And his times were definitely a downward spiral for the Muslim world. The issue of decline and collapse is very much at the center of his work. He knew he was coming after the proud era of the Caliphate, which once stressed from Spain to India and had such illustrious figures as Harun al-Rashid and al-Ma'mun. In his time, there was a patchwork of states that come and go pretty frequently and which have lots of ups and downs in conflicts. And that's really what he was trying to understand. Now, I say that Ibn Khaldun was a man of his times, but he was really trying not to be one. And what I mean by that is he was trying to explain what was going on in his very turbulent Muslim world in terms of an overall theory of history. He wanted to explain why things were like this in terms of historical forces that basically worked uh, throughout history. So he will be most remembered for proposing a theory of history that explains the rise and fall of empires in a generic sense. Ostensibly, this should apply to ancient Mesopotamia as well as the galactic empire that Darth Vader worked for. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. 
a guy living in the midst of turbulent times when things seem really gloomy, crises are coming day after day, often wants to see the big picture, to say this is not all there is, that this fits into some overall larger pattern. But what's distinct about Ibn Khaldun, however, is that this medieval Muslim sees the answer in a theory of historical dynamics, one that looks at military, political, economic, social forces, and which has rightly been called the start of modern historical theory. Rather than looking at destiny or mystical forces or divine intervention, which was far more common in the time that he was living in. Now, that of course is only remarkable if you're on some kind of morning talk show talking about Islam and everybody is just impressed that this Muslim guy is proposing a secular theory of history. By now, after listening to a lot of episodes of this podcast, hopefully, the idea that Muslim scholars of the Middle Ages were thoroughly versed in what we would consider secular sciences, that they were the most advanced of their day, should not surprise you. I mean, that's kind of like being amazed that uh, Ibn Haytham explained optics using physics instead of divine miracles. We spoke many episodes ago about al-Biruni, who did what we would today call anthropology in his study of the Hindus with interest in their cultural practices, not just to condemn them as heathens. So the idea that a person in the 1300s in Muslim North Africa would develop a theory of history that seems to us as scientific and non-mystical as the theories of physics and mathematics and chemistry that were going around at the same time, I mean, that really shouldn't surprise us. You know, really, we only hear that kind of amazement when uh, people make a comment that someone like Ibn Sina or Ibn Khaldun were devout Muslims and scientists, as if this is supposed to come to a shock uh, for people who have this sort of uh, very narrow view of Islam. Really, all the great theorists and scholars that we've talked about so far were also devout Muslims, and they got their initial training largely in Islam and Islamic jurisprudence. So Ibn Khaldun is not really the anomaly that he's made out to be in the West, and by in the West I mean the non-scholarly West, sort of the nightly news type. Well, but the biggest question does end up revolving around the relationship of religion to his theories. And this is the one that the scholars continue to go back and forth writing books at each other in how religious was he? How really secular was his theory? Was it really a secular theory at all or was it really a religious theory presented in a different way? Well, we're going to talk about that question a little bit later in this program, but we have to remember the truth is that nobody in 14th century Tunisia is going to write a totally secular, non-religious theory of anything. His family had been prominent in politics in Spain, but as we've talked about during this time, Spain was falling very gradually from north to south to the Spanish conquest, and a lot of people from El Andalus were immigrating to the North African Muslim world, and particularly Tunis was the big beneficiary of this, and also Cairo. Uh, so this was an important event that would help shape his worldview, the fact that he had to leave what had been his ancestral estate there in Spain, which had once been flourishing. Now, they were still a wealthy family, so even in Tunis, he got the best possible education one could get there. I mean, he studied, he became licensed to teach all the big subjects of the day, Islamic law, the Quran, Arabic language, and so forth. 
and he tried to enter politics, and he got some fairly significant positions in Tunis and Spain. But politics at that time, and really you've heard us talking all about this uh, throughout this show, has, has been a lot about intrigue and backstabbing and plotting and maneuvering. So just like anybody else, he rose and fell frequently. I mean, he would no sooner find a patron who had an important position, and that person would end up being overthrown or kicked out, and then he would be on the outs as well. So uh, Ibn Khaldun found his fortunes going up and down quite a bit, and this also left a very strong impression on him. And you'll get this picture with this guy. I mean, he's something that definitely everything that happened to him in his life, he looked at it not only as a personal experience, but you know, how does this demonstrate historical forces? He really had that perspective. And so that's what he saw. He saw an Islamic world in decline, and he saw a lot of petty politics and maneuvering and internal fighting going on, and he didn't quite like it. Even in his work as a historian, his rivals try to get him in trouble frequently. And we've seen that with poets trying to knock each other off and getting each other thrown in prison and so forth. So this was not a safe profession. Anyway, he quickly became tired of all his bickering and backstabbing and the constant political instability. And so he took a sojourn out in the desert with the Berber tribes. This is one thing he was always particularly noted for, was his good relations with the Berber tribes. And we haven't talked a lot about that area of Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, and so forth. But of course, as you know from the map, there were settlements along the coast and somewhat inland, but most of the desert was the realm of the Berbers. And so relations with the Berber tribes were extremely important. Any dynasty in North Africa that was going to survive had to manage them and have good relations with them. And so Ibn Khaldun, uh, he studied them. He went out and did what we would call anthropology, got to know their politics and their interests, mostly so he could serve as a political advisor to these Muslim states. But this had a big impact on his work. Well, by the year 1370, things were going pretty badly for Ibn Khaldun. Most of his family had died from the plague. Uh, he had lost his position when his patron got kicked out of office. And he was sent on a diplomatic mission to the Berber tribes. And actually, he liked things better out there, and so he settled down in the town of Kalat ibn Salama, which is in western Algeria. He stayed there for three years, working on what would become his most famous book, the Muqaddimah. And we're going to be talking about that today. This book was completed in 1377. Now, it's often noted the comparison between Ibn Khaldun and Machiavelli. And, of course, they have some similarities and a whole lot of differences. Uh, both of them were not in office, were not in favor when they wrote their most famous works. And, of course, we know Machiavelli wrote The Prince, which he's famous for basically trying to win favor with the Medici family. And it was his version of advice to the prince, Lorenzo. And, of course, Machiavelli is famous. He's sometimes seen as being ruthless. But what he did was he gave a sort of uh, non-religious explanation of how a prince should govern. And, and some of it was just being very practical. Well, the same thing is said of Ibn Khaldun, who, of course, was 200 years before Machiavelli, that he's out of office, that he's writing this to try and show how much he knows and win favor with the rulers of the day so he could get his positions back. And eventually he will end up getting a position. Position. He will die in Cairo, having served the Mamluks there. But really, it, his work is a lot more than this. So, the Muqaddimah is definitely Ibn Khaldun's greatest legacy. Some scholars refer to this as the first work of social science, of historiography, none of which is true, but it is a big advance in the study of history. Uh, like a lot of things, it's explained that the world before was completely dark, and then he wrote this, and it totally inaugurated a new science, which is not the truth. I mean, the science of history had been evolving in his day, but he made a big leap here. 
And this is a work, interestingly, that most people who study history have to read, even if they're not doing Middle Eastern history. So if you intend to study European history or Latin American history, uh, you usually have to take a theory course, and one of the things you'll study is Ibn Khaldun, because he's that important. So about the book. Well, the word muqaddama means introduction, and just about every book in Arabic has one. And so that's why it's most proper to call this the Muqaddama of Ibn Khaldun, because it would sound funny to anyone who knows Arabic if you didn't say that. Uh, but the reason it is called this is because Ibn Khaldun was planning to write a history of the world, uh, which he eventually did. Uh, it was called the Kitab al-Ibar, and it's a seven-volume history of the world, which runs about 4,000 pages. And this is the introduction to that history of the world, and it's 500 pages in itself. So think of this as the muqaddama is the introduction, the preface to a really long book that follows. Now the Kitab al-Ibar is only read by really hardcore Ibn Khaldun uh, scholars. But the Muqaddimah is read by a lot of people. So it is important to realize that this book was not meant to stand by itself. The seven volumes that follow are the history of the world, at least as he knew it, of every dynasty that he knew of up to his time. The introduction is where he's basically laying out the theories. Okay, this is how history works. Here are the basic rules and laws of history. And then he's going to talk about the specifics. So that is the, the uh, context uh, for this. Well, the Muqaddimah then is Ibn Khaldun's overview of why things happen in history. Now, it's incorrectly said that he was the first one to ask why rather than merely recording events. Now, we've said that's not true. He even had rivals who were doing the same thing. Uh, and he spent a lot of time recording events as well. Uh, but it, this was definitely the most refined and uh, persuasive theory of why things happen up to that point. It's also said that he was the first one to explain history in terms of human actions and forces rather than divine judgment, which is also not true. We know that. He had rivals in his own day that were doing the same. But it is also true that most people in the 1300s looked at history as God's judgment, and certainly up to that point they had. I mean, when you think of the Old Testament of the Bible, that is exactly why everything happens. Israel is defeated or it's victorious based on whether God is mad at them or not, not based on anything that the kings or the generals do or any economic factors or uh, factors in the neighboring countries. Now, what's significant about Ibn Khaldun that his work has stood the test of time. Really, 700 years we're talking about, and his theory is still being studied. So debating whether this guy 700 years ago was really a one-man show, a genius who was totally ahead of his time, who came up with a theory out of nowhere, or whether he was a man who consolidated ideas that were circulating around, I mean, that's something for, you know, trivia experts to go into. What we want to say is that the theories that he put together uh, continue to have an important impact. And, I mean, he couldn't have published these ideas and had such influence if his ideas were totally out of sync with the rest of society. So, obviously, people were prepped to hear them. Well, like any other scholar, Ibn Khaldun depended on sponsors and he worked as a politician and advisor, so his ideas had to be palatable to those around him. Now, some of the things he wrote were offensive to the people he worked for, uh, particularly the Mamluks didn't like some of his ideas, and you'll see why. Uh, but this idea that we hear in the West, that he just came out of nowhere with this completely revolutionary theory, uh, not only is that not backed up by evidence, but it, it really wouldn't have been possible. So we have to conclude... No matter how revolutionary Ibn Khaldun may have been, that the Muslim world of his time was ready to accept his ideas of a cycle of history, of dynasties rising and falling for some very human reasons of management. Mm -hmm.
Okay, well, so far we've been building up this theory and we haven't talked about it, so I'm sure you're very curious to get into it. So now we want to talk about the actual theory for which Ibn Khaldun became famous. Now before I do that, I want to say that, I mean, of course, over his lifetime he wrote a lot more than this, and even in the 500 pages of the Muqaddimah, uh, there is a lot more than this one theory that we're going to talk about. But it's sort of like Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, the man who became famous for his view on jihad. Uh, this is really the thing that he becomes famous for. Now his theory is either pure genius or just pure common sense, depending on how you look at it. It could be the fact that you know we in our time have heard this kind of thing a lot. People talking about why empires fall, about why civilizations crumble. So it sounds fairly common to us. Uh, just how unique it was in Ibn Khaldun's time is a matter of debate between dozens of dueling historians who can't agree on really much of anything. Okay, so anyway, the key to Ibn Khaldun's cycle of history, and it definitely is a cycle, is his division of the world into the Bedouin and the settled peoples, which is the names that we're going to use for them. Now, by Bedouin, he doesn't mean strictly the people we think of as Bedouin. Uh, he's talking about really all types of nomadic people. Berbers, Mongols, Turks for at least the, the early centuries. I mean, essentially he's dividing the world into the city folk and the non-city folk. And as you remember from many episodes in this series, uh, he would have seen a lot of nomadic people conquering various Muslim states. And so this was extremely important to him. And we have to remember that he, this is a guy who got sick of big city politics uh, and found his happy place amongst the Berbers. So that obviously is going to affect uh, his judgment on this. So anyway, the cycle basically works like this. If we can imagine that the Bedouin are living out in the hinterlands while the city folk are enjoying the life of luxury in the town. The Bedouins see all the good stuff in town and they attack the city folk and they defeat them pretty easily because the city folk have become spoiled and lazy and they can't fight and the Bedouin are really, really tough. So the Bedouin take over um, the cities. They take over what used to be the domain of the settled folks and they set up their own kingdom. Well, at first, this is a super tough kingdom because they have the best of both worlds. We've got these, you know, rock-hard Bedouins who now have all the trappings of the city world, and so they, they've got everything they need. But the next generation, those are people who are born in the city, they're not quite as tough as the conquerors. The next generation gets even weaker. By the fourth generation, we've come full cycle. And this formerly Bedouin dynasty, they're now as spoiled and lazy as the people they defeated, and it's going to be their turn to fall to the next wave of Bedouin, and so on and so forth. Now, of course, Ibn Khaldun understood that four generations was just an estimate. That's what he gave. Some empires would last longer than others. I mean, that had to be true. I mean, if if there weren't possible to change this pattern, there'd be no purpose in writing if every empire was doomed to fall in four generations. But he was using this as a model. Now, as soon as you hear this, it starts to make sense because we can think of lots of examples of this happening. I mean, the Arabs who came out of the desert, they conquered many empires. They conquered Persians and Byzantines, and they went through them really fast. And then the Mongols came along and they crushed everybody. But even outside the Middle East, in places that Ibn Khaldun didn't know of, the same was true. I mean, think of how many different conquests there were of England. Uh, the big one, of course, was the Roman Empire that fell to waves of nomadic conquerors. But even way outside of this region, we can think of the Manchus in China who came long after Ibn Khaldun. So it seems to make a lot of sense. And, you know, interestingly, when I lived in Saudi Arabia, I always thought it was funny that my host would tell me that I had to read Ibn Khaldun because it was so important. 
Uh, because if you think about it, uh, if any society really fits Ibn Khaldun's description, uh, the Arab Gulf states would be it. A hundred years ago, these were the toughest nomadic fighters on the planet, uh, whereas today, 80% or more of the population of most rich Gulf oil countries are imported manual servants. Now, notice disrespect to my listeners from the Gulf, please don't unsubscribe. Uh, as I know, uh, America has plenty of its own issues with obesity and laziness and lack of exercise. But you see, it's, it's very clear that this happens to a lot of societies uh, all over the place. So it sounds pretty genius, but on closer examination, of course, we find the reality is not so simple. Uh, historians have filled up libraries debating on what actually caused the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, the greatest historian of that genre, Sir Edward Gibbon, who wrote the famous Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he attributed it partly to Christianity, partly to the barbarity of the gladiators and so forth. Uh, but he also described what he called a decay of civic virtue. And that would fit fairly well with Ibn Khaldun's theory. And Gibbon himself also concluded that the big question was not why the Roman Empire fell, but how it held on for so long. And that also sort of fits with Ibn Khaldun's description that most dynasties collapsed much sooner than the Roman Empire did. And so how did they avoid that? But we can look at some other examples that don't really fit very well. I mean, if we look at the European conquests of the Americas, which were very nasty affairs, the opposite would seem to be at work. It would seem like the the uh, settled people were uh, killing off the nomadic people. In fact, much of history is about settled empires conquering nomadic people. And so it might seem like Ibn Khaldun is having it both ways. For example, when the city folk are defeating the nomads, then that's the early generations of his cycle. That's where the dynasty is flowering. When we get to the later generations, that's when the city folk lose. So it's almost one of these things that win or lose, his theory can explain it. And then you have to throw in the fact uh, that some empires, like the Byzantines, have lots of ups and downs. And so his cycle seems like less than a general theory um, than just a paradigm that we can apply to a lot of states. And so, like any theory of history, it's not going to be absolute, but it is pretty useful for some certain cases. It would also seem like his theory is much better suited for a region like the Middle East, which we know is bordered by areas of wilderness. I mean, we have the Sahara Desert, we have Central Asia, we have the Arabian Desert, and these nomadic groups keep rising up one after the other. And we've talked a lot about the the history of what happens to the caliphate, particularly in Iraq, and it seems like there is just one nomadic group after another after another, and if you defeat one, then the next one comes and the next one comes, and so it seems like there's an infinite supply of them. So you could see why a guy like Ibn Khaldun, who is living on the fringe of a desert, of the Sahara Desert, which is the Great Desert, would base his theory on this idea that there's always more Bedouin people coming. After one Bedouin group sets up an empire, here comes another one and another one. It's harder to apply someplace like, say, England, which has pretty much maintained its empire, so to speak, for about a thousand years, or France, which has lasted even longer. Okay, we could even say that Russia is another one that has la lasted for a long time. So anyway, the fact that it's not an ironclad law doesn't mean it's not useful for some cases. But anyway, the real big controversy among scholars is just how religious or not this theory was. And scholars have been in a yes it is, no it isn't back and forth really for the last three centuries since the, the Western world discovered him. So someone will write a book saying, yeah, it really was a religious theory, and someone writes another book saying, no, you're wrong, and it goes on uh, forever. Now, the fact that he was an Islamic jurist, and just like any writer of the time, 
filled up his writing with lots of religious references and praises to God, that kind of makes it difficult because this is woven in throughout. And so the big question that historians have is that, is he just throwing in all this stuff about God because that's the way people talked back then, or is it really essential to his theory of history? It's kind of like the way evangelical writers today try and claim that everybody who lived before the 20th century was a devout Christian because they mentioned God all the time when they wrote. I mean, that's just the way that people wrote, whether you were Blackbeard the Pirate or George Washington. You mean everything was praise God this, praise God that. Okay, so the first reaction in this question, and this is probably the one that jumps out most obviously to us, is that he is offering an explanation of history that is not based on divine intervention. If we're comparing it, say, to like the history in the Bible, where everything is God getting mad or God rescuing his people, his theory is a cycle. It's not a steady line from ignorance to worldwide salvation. It seems to work basically on who is tougher, who is better organized, not God giving victories to the side that he favors. And this is a particularly big divergence since we have talked about Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb much earlier, right? The idea that history was heading towards this day when Islam would eventually rule all the world. But you can see why by the 1300s, that theory was much harder to hold up than it was, let's say, at the time of the Umayyads, when uh, Islam was just on this non-stop winning streak. By his time, I mean, Islam is losing ground. Islamic states are being conquered by Christian states. And so you could see why he would produce a theory that it doesn't have that linear um, progression to it. Uh, Now, he was criticized in his day, but not for this. The critics mostly attacked his knowledge of actual historical events and his views on nomadic versus settled civilizations, the preference he really seems to have for the Bedouin. But the idea that a Muslim jurist was writing about effective government, that really wasn't a shock to anyone. Okay, so that's one way of looking at this and saying that he's offering what is essentially a secular theory. Even if he's not a secular guy totally, he's not anti-religious, he's not looking at history uh, in, in terms of a religious purpose or through a religious lens. Well, the comeback to this is that religion does play a big part in Ibn Khaldun's theory, and not just when he's specifically talking about religion, because he does write a lot about religion. Well, this is where it gets a bit more tricky because he definitely does believe in the superiority of Islam as a historical force. But is that just because of the social effects it has, the organizing effects that it has, or because of the divine message? As we've seen, Islam was intimately wrapped up with government from the very beginning, uh, somewhat unlike Christianity. So good government and Islam go together from for centuries, and so it's hard to separate them out. Okay, so to sort of assess this question, we have to look in more detail at his theory. Now, of course, he didn't write a 500-page book just to say that there's a four-generation cycle. He goes into a lot of detail about the specific things that happen in each of those stages and how everything begins to decay from the military the economic, the political system. And it's actually quite uh, interesting and quite convincing, and it's backed up by a lot of examples. But we want to talk here about the key concept, and this is the one key word with which Ibn Khaldun is generally associated, and that word in Arabic is asabiya. It's such a key term that it usually isn't even translated, uh, because when it is, it usually gets watered down. Asabiya is the force that enables you to conquer empires. So it's got to be something pretty strong. Uh, Asabiya is sometimes translated as esprit de corps or cohesion or even the very weak, quote, group feeling. But you can see none of these are particularly stirring images. Now, 
people in the military, I think, can relate to this idea pretty well. Uh, the Marine Corps is famous for its asabia. Right? In the Army, we pledge to never leave a fallen comrade on the battlefield, even if you have to die trying to carry them to safety. Right? That's asabia in action. So if you want to know this, uh, walk into a bar full of Marines and step on the Marine Corps flag. You're going to get a lesson in asabia pretty quick. This is the kind, and please don't do that, of course. Um, this is the kind of blood bond between people where you will die for the other members of your tribe and you know they will die for you, that they'll never leave you. It's that sort of bond. What Ibn Khaldun is saying is that the Bedouin have this. You have to have this to survive in the desert. But it is very difficult to maintain in a city. I mean, you know, if you live in a city today, uh, you probably don't even know who your neighbors are. You may not even know the people who are in the next apartment. Uh, if you're living in the Bedouin tribe, you're probably related to every one of those people. Now, you have heard me say many times on this show that if you outsource your military to somebody else, you're going to fall. And that's what happens when you lose Asabia, essentially. In a Bedouin tribe, uh, I mean, there is no full-time army. Every able-bodied man is a fighter. And you go out and you fight to the death to protect the tribe because if you lose, you're going to die. Now, in a settled state, that's not the way it works. We have division of labor. So you get a professional army where only some people do the fighting. Other people have to work the public works. They have to do the farming. They have to do the bureaucracy and so forth. Then you get people who don't want to be in the army after a while, and so you hire mercenaries or you bring in slave soldiers. Pretty soon, you have a foreign people serving as your army. This, of course, is what the Romans did. It's what we saw the Khalifs do when they brought in the Turks. What Ibn Khaldun is saying, though, is when the next wave of Bedouin comes, and, I mean, he was living in an environment where there was an infinite supply of them, these foreign people that you've hired... I mean, they have no incentive to die for you. I mean, if you've hired a Bedouin tribe to defend Tunis, um, they're not willing to die for Tunis, so they're either going to run away or they'll join in with the attackers and get their share, and they probably have more in common for them. Now, we know, in fact, when the Roman Empire was collapsing, it was almost impossible to tell where the boundaries of the empire were because they had brought in so many Germanic tribes to be their mercenaries, to be their fighters, and they were being attacked by other Germanic tribes, and oftentimes those two would join forces. I mean, you just couldn't say where the Roman Empire, where the border of it ended. Were these people we hired still fighting for us, or were they fighting for the other side? Okay, so this is very different than, say, any Bedouin tribe where you go out to defend what is essentially a big family, and you all live or die together. Okay, and so that's basically the dynamic that Ibn Khaldun is uh, putting up. And we can see how well it fits with the, the history that we've talked about, beginning with the Arabs, where we had the large Arab Bedouin population and the much smaller cities. And there was always this respect for um, the, the Bedouin culture. Okay, so that seems to be a fairly secular view. But Ibn Khaldun does acknowledge that religion can be a great source of asabiyah, and that makes sense. And of course, Islam was the best at this, and they had the history to prove it. I mean, even today, it is impossible to untangle how much of the Arab-Muslim conquests were Arab tribalism and how much were Islamic religious zeal. I mean, the reality is that these two fed off each other. Uh, the centuries that have followed really have largely made the tribal and national identities look stronger. But there's no doubt that having a common religion, a common language, a common history, all work together to make a strong uh, package. And so you know, Islam can become, and it was meant to be, uh, sort of the new tribe the new basis on which we form our tribe. And so in that sense, it can become a, a source of asabiyah. Another factor that is very important for Ibn Khaldun is law. I mean, essentially, he was a professor of it. Uh, 
But even today, we see that rule of law is one of the keys of a strong state. It's the best defense against corruption, against crime, against disorder and disunity, all of which weaken a state. This is one of the ways we sort of predict whether a state is going to fail or not is based on the rule of law. So here again, Ibn Khaldun sees the Islamic Sharia as the best example of this. And in truth, up to his time, it was probably the most effective law code ever devised. And since the ultimate source of the Sharia is God, that means that no person can be above that law. So Hamilton Gibb, who is one of the greatest Middle East scholars um, ever, really, he sees this as the key to Ibn Khaldun's theory. And basically, in his view, what Ibn Khaldun is saying that the Sharia is the path to salvation, both for nations and individuals. And the state that adheres to that Sharia will succeed, not only religiously, but they will succeed and be a strong state. So everything that he's describing is talking about how well a state is able to apply and adhere to the Sharia. And the things that he describes as being the collapse of the state, this laziness, this luxury that creeps in, these are really the result of the sins of pride and gluttony. So this cycle of dynasties essentially becomes the story of religious salvation being played out on a national level. Well, if you read the Muqaddama, and I, there's excellent English translations of it, I highly recommend it to you, that conclusion doesn't exactly jump out at you. If that was the point that Ibn Khaldun was trying to make, I mean, he doesn't come right out and state it, and he tends to come right out and state things pretty clearly in a very organized way. And so you wonder also, why will you talk so much about asabiyah as being this key, when what you really mean is some indirect process where asabiyah becomes a way of helping you apply the sharia. I think, for example, the Mongols, who had crushed the Muslim states, they were outright pagans. And so, I mean, Ibn Khaldun is definitely not adopting um, the explanation that the Mongols succeeded because they uh, applied the Islamic Sharia. So that doesn't seem to fit. But one thing we definitely know is that the Mongols had this incredible uh, sense of this cohesion this Bedouin battlefield cohesion, which is a form of asabiyah, it's definitely a pagan asabiyah, which was stronger than the corruption and the infighting in a Muslim state like Khorasan uh, that fell to them. So it's hard not to get the feeling that Ibn Khaldun is really talking about religion the way a doctor talks about it. You know, you hear a doctor say that faith makes a patient stronger, gives them hope, gives them comfort, gives them the ability to, to keep going on. Uh, it doesn't mean that the doctor actually believes in the religion, but he sees it as an instrumental thing. Uh, no doubt Ibn Khaldun thinks that Islam provides a basis for the most important elements of a successful state. But it does sound more instrumental than miraculous. Now, we know that he definitely does believe in Islam as a devout Muslim. But again, he's talking about history and politics, it seems to me, uh, the same way that uh, a physicist is talking about physics. And it does make sense that he would sort of conclude that because Islam had produced the most successful empires up to his time. Even if they were in decline when he was writing, the states that had the best asabiya, that had the, the greatest unity and were strongest, were Islamic states. So there are a lot of scholars who interpret him this way, who see that he's just uh, referring to religion as an instrumental factor. But in any case, Gibb certainly knew the book better than I do. But it's just to say that there are very well-known and respected scholars who take both sides of that argument. Now, this overall theory of the rise and fall of dynasties involved not just the military power, 
but economic, social, and a legal organization and political organization as well. And so one of the areas in which Ibn Khaldun has had his biggest uh, influence has been on economics, specifically what we would call political economy today. And so he talks about the value-adding processes. That is how labor and skill and in uh, artistic craft are added and increase the value of something, enabling a society to make profit. And this, of course, is something that those settled civilizations can do much better than the Bedouin civilizations. But over time, uh, these things start to decline, particularly as the society becomes more interested in luxury and accumulating large amounts of money. And we see that even today in our society where we have people who have I mean, just phenomenal amounts of money, billions and billions of dollars, and it's actually detrimental to the overall economy. Interestingly, uh, Ibn Khaldun had an influence on one of the primary things that all students of economic study today, and that is the famous Laffer curve, which was developed by Arthur Laffer, and that is a curve which uh, figures out where the optimum taxation level for a state is. And Laffer was concerned that uh, too little taxes uh, would weaken the state, but too much taxes would um, hurt productivity. Uh, Laffer himself cites Ibn Khaldun as a source for this idea. And that's something that Ibn Khaldun talked about. Uh, basically, that taxation kept getting heavier and heavier as a dynasty got older. And that's because the rulers wanted more and more. They became more and more greedy. Uh, the bureaucracy became bloated. There was more and more corruption. And this is something I think we can definitely all relate to. Uh, Ibn Khaldun also talked a lot about education and the importance of education for a society and the importance of each new generation improving uh, the education system and not just following the traditions of what was studied before, but continuing to reward innovation in order for them to stay on the cutting edge. That's the only way that they were going to continue to be uh, strong. And so in addition to that, he talked about the importance of language in binding the society together. Uh, he talked a lot about corruption and how that filtered in and how the, uh, the values of society would change over time. All this came together to make this one solid picture of a civilization and how it is at the height of its power and how these things all begin to decline all at the same time. And this is how he's able to fill up a 500-page book talking about this. And so this is why he is seen as the father of so many different social sciences. This, of course, was just one part of Ibn Khaldun's work, although it is definitely the most famous part. He wrote about Islamic law as a jurist, and he definitely did think it was key to purifying the soul and attaining salvation. He was a big supporter of Sufism as well. But I think we do have to look at the way he treats history the way other very devout Muslims treated, say, optics or physics or math. To him, it was a science, one that he was trying to propose rules for, one that made sense and could be explained logically. I mean, Ibn Haytham, for example, he praised God for his creation and for his illumination and his blessings, and then he went on to discuss optics in a very scientific way, not in mystical terms. No one thought he was less religious for that. And I think this is what Ibn Khaldun was doing in history. Uh, and his other subjects, when he talked about economics and biology and government. 
And I think he was also getting used to a world in which the inevitable conquest of Islam was no longer a given. I mean, he was in a world where it was in decline in some places. Well, after his death in the year 1406, Ibn Khaldun did not enjoy great popularity. He was studied by some, but he, he was not um, an overwhelming success who had cornered the market on history. And particularly the Mamluks, and that's who he worked for in his last years, uh, they had some issues with his ideas, as you might expect, because they were, of course, slave soldiers. And so you could see where they would have some problems with what he said. He did have a bit of a revival in the Ottoman Empire, and particularly after they had essentially ridden his cycle to its peak when they took over. But it was really in 1697 when he was introduced to Europe, and then really in the 1800s that he was regarded as a great historian that one had to consider um, no matter what type of history that you studied. Uh, since then, he has maintained that status. And so, that's the man and his theory. In the end, we're no closer than we were at the beginning of this story. It's basically up to you to decide whether this theory is genius or just common sense, whether it was a revolution or just a continuation of what other people were saying, and whether he was a modern Enlightenment thinker centuries before his time or really a religious guy posing an essentially religious theory. Well, whatever you decide, the legacy of Ibn Khaldun continues on to this day, and perhaps he is best a representative of the times in which he lived, when it was well expected that the uh, leading pioneers of social sciences and history would be a Muslim, and when one could write about a subject like history as a discipline, as a science, and not as a mystical religious thing. And that is sort of a picture of the Islamic world in his time in the 1300s. He continues to be a huge name today, and he continues to have a huge impact. And so for that, we salute him. And thank you very much for your kind attention today on this episode about Ibn Khaldun, perhaps the father of modern history. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for your kind ratings. We depend on them to stay on the air, to bring you this program without advertisements. And so please keep them coming. Shukran jazeelan wa ma salama.